Good morning, Boker Tov to all. Thank you for joining us as we continue to learn virtually together, taking advantage of the uh, incredible uh, technology, the gift of technology that we have. So glad that we are together and hope that you can hear clearly this morning. This morning we have the privilege of studying Parshas Achari most together. We're going to try to incorporate some thoughts of the theme of Yom HaZikaron. Today is a day that we join Jews around the world in thinking about commemorating, memorializing uh, those who gave their lives for founding of the State of Israel and for the continuity, the protection of the State of Israel, victims of terror, who died al Kiddush Hashem, and uh, we join Jews around the world in thinking about them. Our Parsha series this year is generously sponsored by Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lilo'i Nishmas, David ben Menachem Manish. Thank you so much for your generosity, your sponsorship, and your leadership in so many different ways. Archei Most is found in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash on page 636. As always, it's best to have a chumash with you to be able to follow along, preferably even a mikros gedolas, as we'll see some of the mefarshim inside together today. If not, it's no problem. You can listen carefully, and we will try to uh, explain. So our parsha begins. The parsha begins by referencing what had happened recently: the tragic, premature death of Nadav and Avihu. Aaron had suffered a horrific loss on what should have been the happiest day of his life, the inauguration of the Mishkan, opening day of his serving as the Kohen Gadol. Instead, he tragically lost his two sons inexplicably. So much so, the text is absent, and our commentaries debate exactly what they did wrong. And here, we introduce our new Pasha and the story of Aaron's role in leading the Yom Kippur service with this reference to Achare Mos Shnei B'nei Aaron, after the death of the two sons of Aaron. We're not going to get into it, but I leave it to you or I challenge you to think about why does our Pasha not mention their name? Why are their names not deserved to be acknowledged? They're simply known here as Achare Mos Shnei B'nei Aaron. After the death of Aaron's two sons. Why not mention them by name? But moving on to the next Pasuk. Speak to your brother. You cannot come casually. You cannot come whenever you crave to the Kodesh. You're not allowed to just approach whenever you want. You can't approach the bench without being summoned. Similarly here, it's only when there is a cloud that will appear that Aaron will know he is eligible to approach. Otherwise, he cannot come close. He cannot come close. Why? Bezos Yavo, Rashi says, And even this is not talking about all throughout the year. We're talking about the holiest person, the holiest place, and the holiest day of the year. Only then can he approach. It's a very interesting instruction. We're going to examine it more closely in one moment. But I want to first ask a simple question. God speaks to Moshe and he says, Daber al Aaron, speak to your brother Aaron. Only here, he doesn't just say, speak to your brother Aaron. He says, speak to your brother Aaron, Achicha. Speak to Aaron, your brother. The text could have simply said, speak to Aaron. If by Achare Mos, you don't know that Aaron and Moshe are brothers, you have not been paying careful attention. We all know that Aaron and Moshe are brothers. So why not simply say, hey Moshe, speak to Aaron and tell him this rule. You can't approach at will, at whim. You can't approach casually. You have to be invited. Why is it introduced specifically as Aaron Achicha here? This question is asked by Rabbi Yisrael Meir Druk and his wonderful Sefer Eish Tamid on the Parsha. I've been sharing insights with you from it recently. Uh, I was, he was kind enough to uh, give me a set with a beautiful inscription, Great Rosh Hashiva in Yerushalayim, Ir HaKodesh. And he asked this question, why Aaron Achicha here? And he asks it not just here. He points to several places throughout Torah and he says, sometimes Aaron is simply identified as Aaron. Other times, Aaron is identified as Aaron Achicha. For example, for example, when Aaron hesitates and refuses to go, Hashem tells, hello, Aaron Achicha, He's going out with you. You don't have to worry. Aaron, your brother. We have similarly, The story of the main Mariva, when Moshe hits the rock instead of speaking, the instruction is to take his staff, you and Aaron, your brother. 
You will ascend the mountain and you will die there just like your Aaron, your brother. So Rav Yisrael Meir Druk wonders why sometimes is Aaron identified simply as Aaron? And by now we all know who he is, his pedigree. And other times he is identified specifically as Aaron, Achicha. So he gives a very interesting answer. First he references the Orachayim HaKadosh. And the Orachayim HaKadosh says the following. Says the following. The Orachayim quotes a Medrash here. The Pasuk says, Daber al Aaron, speak to your brother. Sha'amarti l'cha, I told you. Halar Aaron achicha halevi v'ra'acha v'samach belibo. The Pasuk says that your Aaron, your brother, is the Levi. Yadati k'yadeber gam hu. There is your brother Aaron, the Levite. He, I know, speaks readily. V'gam hinehu yotzeh l'krasecha v'ra'acha v'samach belibo. Go and meet him, and he'll be happy to see you. When Moshe demurs, when he hesitates, when he feels in, uh, when he feels um, inadequate to be able to go be the leader to redeem the Jewish people, Hashem reassures him and says, "Don't worry, you got Aaron." So what's going on? Why is the Medrash saying that here? Why is, why is Moshe has to instruct Aaron, go and you're going to the Kodesh HaKadoshim? It's a very risky proposition. As the Kohen Gadol, you may not walk out alive. Aaron may worry. Look what happened to Aaron's sons, my two nephews. They acted, they entered inappropriately without being invited. And what was the consequence? What was the result? They, they died, tragically. What about my brother? So what drove Moshe's concern and worry was the notion it was his brother, and therefore he has to give this instruction, He's speaking at Aaron Achicha as a brother, with brotherly love, with brotherly concern, with a brotherly focus. That's Achicha. The fact that Aaron is his brother is what is offering that concern, and that's what the Torah is telling us. Uh, Moshe is giving Aaron that warning. You can't simply enter whenever you want. But Rav Druk gives an alternative pshat, a very fascinating pshat. And it's at length. I'm just going to summarize it for you. But Rav Druk basically says the following, not only in this pasuk and in this circumstance, but applies it every time Aaron is identified, not simply as Aaron, applies it every time Aaron is identified as Aaron Achicha. And he basically says the following. Aaron and Moshe had an extraordinary quality. And that quality has a Yiddish term today, and that term is the capacity to fargin another. Fargin means to be able to share in the joy, to make room for the success, the triumph, the happiness, the accomplishment, the achievement, the prominence, the esteem, the admiration of another. We live in a time that people struggle to fargin another, to be able to share in the happiness or the joy of another. You know, the Sefer Orchos Musser points out that the quality of Nosei Ba'olam Chavero, one of the ways in which Torah is acquired, the Mishnah Perkevos tells us, is that a Torah personality has to cultivate within themselves the ability to be Nosei Ba'ol, to feel for another. We've spoken about this at length in other contexts, and normally we think about Nosei Ba'ol, to feel for another, in the sense of feeling the pain of another, seeking to relieve the pain to carry the burden so it's lighter for the other. And we've given classes on practical examples of being no ba'ol in a time of need, in a time of struggle. How can we help those? But the Sefer Orchos, Musser, and many others point out that we're mistaken if we think no ba'ol, the capacity to feel for another, is limited to feeling pain. It's a very Jewish and a very Torah concept to also be able to feel the success, the happiness, the joy of another. To a degree, it's easier to feel the pain of another than the happiness of another, the author of Kem points out. Why? Because when you're going through suffering or pain, when you're going through an acute crisis, of course I'm so grateful I'm not going through it. I'm so happy that that's not affecting me, that it's not me. So I channel my happiness that it's not me into reaching out to help you. But when you're having joy, happiness, success, when you're still getting a paycheck, when you're getting nachas from your children, when there's shalom and you're biased, when everything's going well, so then it's hard because I say, why them, not me? I deserve that happiness. I deserve that joy. I deserve that simcha. I deserve that windfall. Why them and not me? It's harder to be no se besimcha im chavero. It's harder to feel for another when it means to participate or partake in their joy than it does even in their, in their hardship. No se ba'olam chavero. 
That is Moshe Rabbeinu's wonderful quality. He exhibits it as a shepherd with the sheep. It's why, Moshe, it's why God recruits him to be the quintessential paradigmatic leader of the Jewish people in perpetuity. But it's also something very special that Moshe and Aaron share with one another, the ability to be nosei ba'ol b'simchas chavero. Aaron is older than Moshe. And Moshe is deemed greater. One of the 13 principles of our faith is to subscribe to the uniqueness of Moshe as the Av HaNavim. He's categorically different than all other prophets. He ultimately succeeds, exceeds Aaron in his greatness. And yet, Aaron has no feelings of jealousy or envy. Aaron has no ego or arrogance. He's able to share in the joy and the success of his younger brother Moshe. And Moshe too. Moshe, as much as he is successful, he's limited. And says Rav Druk, that's what's going on in our parsha. Because after all, Moshe says, one second, Aaron's the Kohen Gondol, but I'm greater than Aaron. And I'm not allowed to go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Only Aaron is. So in this moment, when Moshe is reminding Aaron about what it takes to enter the Holy of Holies, it is introduced specifically as Aaron, Achicha. Because Moshe had no jealousy. Moshe, Moshe had no competitiveness. Moshe didn't look and say, why is Aaron allowed to enter and I'm not? Doesn't Aaron know the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam? Doesn't he know I'm the Avanavim? Why is he allowed to enter and I'm not? I should be allowed to enter. Moshe had no such thought, no such feeling. He simply experienced the joy of the success of Aaron, his position of prominence and distinction, that Aaron was the Kohen Gadol who was allowed to enter the Kodesh HaKadoshim. We don't have time to develop this fully now, but this is replete in Midrashim. The Pasuk in Tilim tells us that like the fine oil on the head runs down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, the, the Medrash wonders. In Shira Shiram Rabbah, why do I have to be told it runs down the beard, the beard of Aaron? If it runs down the beard, whose other beard is it running down? This is the anointing oil that's elevating Aaron to that position of distinction. And the Medrash tells us, and so on. Says the Medrash, The beard, when it went down Aaron's, when the oil went down Aaron's beard, it was it was as if it was on Moshe's beard. Moshe took such joy. He shared in the happiness, the success of Aaron. Aaron shared in the happiness and the success of Moshe. We see it similarly in the uh, Medrash, on this Pasuk that we alluded to earlier, when Hashem tells him, Aaron Alevi, your brother Aaron, he's going to see you and he's going to go out so happy to see you. The Medrash says, It's in the merit that Aaron shared in the success of his younger brother Moshe that earned him the position of Kohen Gadol and that enabled him to wear the Urim uh, Vetumim. That's this word, the capacity to fargin another, to share in the joy, the happiness, to not be competitive, to not ask, why not me? I deserve more, I deserve better, but rather to see what someone else is having, not only to share in no say ba'ol, in the pain and suffering and struggle of the other, and seek to relieve it and make it lighter, but to share in the success and the joy and the happiness and the achievement of the other, and to be able to simply be happy for another person. And that's why I suggest Rabbi Yisrael Mayor Druk over here that... Uh, specifically, the instruction to Aaron to enter the holy was preceded by Aaron Achicha. Moshe, there was no competitiveness. It didn't matter that Moshe was greater. For this, he was just simply happy for Aaron. Good. Bezos Yavo Aaron. Bezos. What does it mean, Bezos? So there are several interpretations that we know are famous. One, and uh, of course our Pasha, the majority of our parsha is dealing with the laws of Yom Kippur, the service of Yom Kippur. Today we experience Yom Kippur differently. None of us know how we're going to experience Yom Kippur this year. We hope that we'll be back together, led by a chazan, hearing drushas moved, elevated, enriched together. We hope and we pray, please God, by then and much sooner. But in the time of the Beis HaMikdash, Yom Kippur was essentially and primarily led by the Kohen Gadol, rendering the rest of Klai Yisrael essentially spectators to Yom Kippur. And the Kohen Gadol was the main protagonist. He was the centerpiece of the Yom Kippur service. That is the majority of our Pasha. So Bezos, which Unasana Tokef, 
which is arguably the most moving and stirring part of our liturgy, both on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. In Unasana Tokef, we culminate, we declare, Utshuva, Utfila, Utstaka, Ma'avir, Nesroa, Hagzeira. If we want to emerge from Yom Kippur successful and destined for a year of blessing and goodness, then what we need to do, the behavior that will yield that is Tshuva, introspection, Tfila, heartfelt davening, Tstaka, generosity with our resources. On top of those words in the Machzer, Tshuva, Tfila, and Staka, what do you see on top of those words? Tsom Kol Mamon. Fasting, the sound, the voice of Tfila, of prayer, and money. What we do with our money, our capacity to share our money, shows everything about how, where we know that money comes from. Tzitter Stippets, we're learning about Vayivarach David right now. And the Arizal Adaminag, the Mishnabura quotes, when we get up to the words, Ha'osher v'akavod milfanecha, in Vayivarach David, at the end of Pesukei de Zimra, there is a minag to give tztaka. Why do we give tztaka specifically there? So we're up to that in Tzitter Stippets today, or tomorrow, we'll give several reasons, but one of which, the one that resonates deeply for me, is the whole paragraph, Vayivarach David, is David HaMelech saying, all the wealth and all the success and the battles I fought and the material possessions I've accumulated in a mess, it all comes from you. The wealth and the honor, they're from you. So, you know, that's lip service. To look at your house and your car and your portfolio and your health and your success and say, Hashem, that's all you. It's lip service until you demonstrate that you really believe it's from Hashem. So when you stop and you give stuck, when you say, Hashem, you know my wallet, the money in my pocket, whatever I, I have, really, it's from you. It's all from you. I'm demonstrating it's from you by my willingness to share it right now with others. So, and many point out, I'm not a huge gematria guy, but this one's a famous one. Tzom, Kol, and Mamon are each 136. Times three is 408, the same gematria as Zos. And therefore, what the Pasuk is telling us is, Bezos yavo Aaron ala Kodesh. If you want to come into the Kodesh, you want to come into Yom Kippur, you want to succeed in Yom Kippur, it has to be Bezos, Begematria 408, three times Tzom, Kol, and Mamon. You have to come in with that attitude, you have to come in with that mentality, you have to come in with that behavior in order to succeed, in order to be able to emerge. The Imre Chaim, you knew we'd get to an Imre Chaim, the Hilog of Vishnu the Imre Chaim says differently. Don't worry, he quotes that one also. But then he offers another. You cannot enter at any time. Is gematria be'atzvus. You cannot enter holiness with sadness. You cannot enter holiness. The gematria of al yavobucholais is be'atzvus. You can't find holiness if you're sad. The prerequisite to being holy, to being elevated, to being enriched, to being spiritual, is to be happy. The sad, somber, depressed, despondent person can't find holiness. In order to strive to reach, in order to find holiness, it has to be based and founded and built on happiness. That's what the Pasuk says. You know how you get out of whatever predicament you're in? You know how you get out of the tsar? We're in this narrow place. We're restricted to our homes. We're fearful of what will be. And how do you emerge? How do you escape? How do you elevate and transcend above that hardship, that challenging time? It's besimcha seitzayon, with a sense of simcha. So al yavo b'chol eis al kodesh Al yavo b'chol eis, atzvas. You cannot enter with atzvus, with sadness, into Kodesh. If you're trying to get into a place of holiness, trying to have more kavanah and davening, you're trying to be elevated in your personal behavior and conduct, in your speech, in your thought, in your action, in your interactions with others, then you need to first happy. Put a smile on your face. Smile. Smiling is contagious. Smiling releases dopamine. Smiling is what Hashem wants. We know the Pasuk tells us the tochacha, the horrific consequence the Jewish people face is a result of because we don't have simcha. You don't feel like it? Don't wait to be happy to smile. Smile and it will make you happy. You cannot enter any meaningful relationship in your life. You cannot enter Kodesh holiness in your life with a sense of atzvus, with a sense of with a sense of sadness. He then offers another pshat. He says the gematria of Bezos is geus, which is arrogance. 
You cannot enter holiness. You cannot enter meaningful relationships with arrogance, with ego. You have to put your ego aside. You have to be able to submit to the other, make space and room for the other. That is a prerequisite to a meaningful and to a happy relationship. But I want to end our study of the first Pasuk. Aren't you impressed so far? 20 minutes on the opening Pasuk. With um, the beautiful insider of Chaim Shmulevitz. Chaim Shmulevitz wonders, what do you mean? Shmulevitz, the great Mashkiach of the Mir, Rashiv of the Mir, he wonders, why? Why is it that Aaron can't enter any time that he wants? And Rashi tells us the reason Aaron can't enter at will is because the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, dwells there. Okay, good. But Aaron is the Holy. Aaron is the Kohen Gadol. If anyone is eligible, if anyone is positioned to be able to enter, it's Aaron. So why can't he enter? What is the, what is the meaning behind this mitzvah, behind this instruction or this warning that Aaron, even after he purifies himself for seven days, cannot enter without being summoned, without being invited. And listen to what he writes, Rechaim Shmulevitz, Maimer Tazayin. He says the following. He says, Isru Chag Pesach Tafshin Lamed Aleph. Ha-Hergel hu ha-Oyev ha-Gadol shal koregesh kedusra v'hizromimus. You know what the enemy of holiness is? Familiarity. Familiarity, comfort, casualness is the enemy, the Oyev ha-Gadol, of any regish, of any feeling of holiness, or his aromamus, of being elevated. You know, the first time you visit the Kotel, the Kotel is overwhelming, the site of Harabayas. But what happens when you live opposite and you wake up to see it every day? It's a challenge. It's hard. Familiarity robs us of the excitement, the joy, the passion, the enthusiasm. Familiarity breeds contempt, we know. Mixing things up and interspersing and keeping things fresh is what allows us to be able to bring a certain level of enthusiasm. And that's what he says. He has to separate seven days before he can even enter. What's going on here, and he quotes many other sources and a really beautiful insight by Rechaim Shmulevitz. I don't want to dwell too much. I want to move on. But he says what's going on, this is a, a instruction for all of us that familiarity breeds contempt. And that the antidote to familiarity is to keep things fresh, to keep things real, to introduce novelty and newness and innovation, to take a break and come back. That is the source of holiness. Without it, you can't have holiness. And this is a message for us. It's a message about our davening and keeping it fresh, about our learning and keeping it fresh. I spoke the other night about, uh, I gave a talk on Shalom bias when you can't leave the bias. And we talked about this insider of Chaim Shmulevitz because that's a danger. We're living on top of one another 24-7. Newlyweds to empty nesters. We're on top of one another 24-7. This is the ultimate incubator of familiarity. And chas v'shalom, God forbid, it should breed a contempt that there is no personal space, that we can't ever retreat, that there are no boundaries, that there is too much familiarity. Chaim Shmulevitz is right. If we want... Kedusha to our Kedushan, holiness within our marriage, that we need to be able to navigate and negotiate how to have a sense of closeness without breeding a familiarity which would undermine that sense of closeness. Okay, let's move on. So here we have the introduction to the story of Yom Kippur. Bezos Yavo Aaron El How does he enter? He enters Bepar Ben Bakar Lachatas Ola. He comes with a young bull for a sin offering, a ram for an elevation entering. And then the Torah goes on. And it tells us, Pasuk Zion, skip ahead. He takes two goats, and these two goats, how are they identified? He does a lottery on them. One is for Hashem, and the other is for God. And he goes through this very peculiar uh, ceremony. He draws lots that distinguish which of these goats that are exactly identical. One of them is dedicated to Hashem, will be offered as a sacrifice, and the other will... Shh, don't tell Peter, but be pushed off a cliff. And again, we feel for animals. We have laws that govern our sensitivity and love of animals. But the role of animals within our service and personal growth 
They serve as the leather of our couch and our shoes and our belt and the steak that we eat and the carbonos that we offer and even this and this uh, service serve. So it would be a waste and it would be cruel if we didn't understand what it's about and what we're meant to get out of it. So what's really going on over here? You're pushing an animal off a cliff and who is this Azazel? Azazel. What is this name Azazel? So the Kohen Gadol takes these two goats and stands them before Hashem and places these lots upon them. One will be offered and one will be pushed off the cliff. Why is it called Azazel? The goat to God I get. Hashem, we understand. We know Hashem. We're not too familiar with Hashem. We don't have a familiarity or a casual relationship. We have a sense of awe of Hashem. But we've heard of Hashem. We know Hashem. What is this Azazel that the Torah here is referring to, which is so critical to understand this whole section of our parsha? And frankly, it's critical to be able to experience Yom Kippur fully. So make notes for Yom Kippur. Why is it called Azazel? So the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban on our parsha both reference the Gemara in Yuma on Daf Samach Zayin Amid Beis. The Gemara there tells us, Tana Debe Rebbe Yishmol, Azazel Shemechaper Amaisa Uza Vaazael. Azazel is a combination of two names. Azazel is mechaper. Pushing this goat off the cliff atones for the act of the fallen angels, Uzzah and Azael. Oh, well, that makes it much better. That clears it up for us. Only it doesn't. Who are Uzzah and Azael? What is their Misa? What is the episode they went through? Why do they need atonement? And how does this atone for their mistake? Again, many of you, many of us have lived many Yom Kippurs, and we read the Avodah in our Machser, and we read Parshas Achreimos, but we don't begin to understand what the significance or symbolism is here, and it's so critical to understand. Who are these angels? What happened to them? So where both the Parsha and even the Gemara in Yuma leave off, the Zohar, Parshas Balak, picks up. And the Zohar and Parshas Balak tells us that when the Ribbona Shalom, when the Almighty created the world, nobody objected to the introduction of the trees and the clouds and the ocean and the sun, and the moon, no angels, no one objected to any of the creations within nature. They're beautiful. What a great uh, background. What a great backdrop. But when man was created, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu proposed man, and remember he consulted the angels, Nasa Adam B'Tzameinu, Nasa in the plural, the angels took that invitation to an opinion, and they staunchly objected. And they said, Ma'enosh kisiz karenu. What is man that you're mindful of him? Uben Adam, and the son of man that you visit him, a pasuk in Tehillim, Paraches Pasukei. Man is frail and fallible and imperfect. Why is he worthy of your creation and attention? The angel looked at God and he said, you know, the rivers and the streams, the Grand Canyon, the Swiss Alps, psh, they're magnificent. We got it. Thanks for creating them. But this pathetic reject Nebuch Isvarf man He's filled with mistakes and temptation. He's inadequate and unworthy. He's frail. He's fallible. Why in the world are you creating man? Hashem said, Shkoyach, thanks for the input, but it's not really a committee. And he went forward and created man nonetheless. And when man made that mistake, when Adam and Chava made the mistake in Gan Eden that got them expelled, and yet they obtained a pardon, two angels objected. They came to Kodesh Baruch and they said, what do you mean you're giving them a pardon? What do you mean you've expelled them, but you're giving them a second chance on a continuity of this experiment called humanity? Uzzah and Azael approached Hashem and said, we were right. Man is frail and fallible and wrong. And had Hashem looked at the two of them and he said to these angels, had you been with them, you would have sinned equally. And he cast them down from their high estate in heaven onto the earth. He looked at Uzzah and Azael and he said, had you been tempted? Had you been, had you been uh, solicited? Had you been recruited? You would have made the same mistake. And with that, he took these two angels and he threw them down from the heavenly abode down here to earth. Where did they go? Where did they go when he threw them down? Adkan the Zohar. The Zohar gives us the greater background. Azazel, Mechaperfer, the mice of Uzzah and Azael. Who are Uzzah and Azael? These two angels who were the prosecutors against us, who objected to our creation and then threw it in Hashem's face and said, told you so when we made our mistake. Hashem says you would have done worse and he threw them down to earth. Where did they go? Adkan, here the Zohar leaves off. Says the Ishbitzer Rebbe in his Beis Yankov, the Meashiloch, the great Ishbitzer Rebbe in his Beis Yaakov, he says, You know where they went, Uzzah and Azael? My dearest friends, they went into each one of us. Their voice of, of prosecution, their voice of indictment, 
their voice of objection, man is pathetic and unworthy and incapable and inferior and inadequate and frail and infirm and fallible. Man is insignificant and inconsequential. Those voices are in us and they continue to haunt us. And says the Ishbitz Rebbe on Yom Kippur, on the holiest day of the year, on the time designated for a fresh start and a new beginning, you know what we do with that voice of Azazel, of Uzzah and Azael that are inside us? We thrust them and throw them off a cliff. And we say, voices of negativity, voices of unworthiness, verses of being incapable, we're throwing you off a cliff, we're getting rid of you. See, the philosophy of the angel Azael has crept into our psyche. It rings in our ears. It tells us we are imperfect and we have shortcomings and deficiencies. We're not the smartest or the best looking or the most creative or the most capable. And therefore, we underachieve. So we take that voice that causes us to underachieve and what do we do with it? We throw it off a cliff. Listen to the words of the Helege Ishbitzer. This voice is mekatreg. It tries to bring us down. You know, this is particularly true. I've been reading articles of people who have been acting out. And I've been talking to Chaveirim, who were B'nai Aliyah, who outside of the quarantine before this all struck, were striving and reaching and aspiring. And then all of a sudden we've been knocked out of our routine and our sense of normalcy, cast into roles that we're uncomfortable with or that are difficult or that are, are inconvenient. We have been broken out of the uh, platform that helps propel us forward. And therefore people are acting out on the internet with what they're looking and what they're doing. They're not davening the way they could, learning the way they could, behaving the way they could. They've stopped exercising, they're overeating. You've seen the countless memes and gifs supporting that and that voice inside us that says, I can't and I give up and I'm not capable and I can't grow in this environment. Comes along the Avodah of Yom Kippur. We take Azazel, we take this Azazel, the combination of these two angels represented by this goat and we throw it off a cliff. We are capable. We can do it. We can strive. We can reach. We can achieve. We should not give up on ourselves. We should not feel that we can't do it. Push that voice off a cliff. Get rid of it. It says the Beis Yankov, says the Ishbitzer, we'll end with this and move on. He says, you know, when you say the Vidway on Yom Kippur, you clap the al what is not in our parsha, but our modern day observance of Yom Kippur, you might say, what do you mean? The whole Vidoy testifies to the Uzan Azael are right. I did this wrong and that wrong and the other thing wrong. I'm pathetic. I'm a nebuch. I'm a reject. No, it's saying the opposite. The reason I clap al and say the Vidoy is I'm saying, look how much what I does matters. Look how what I do has an impact. It has cosmic implications. And therefore, I have to apologize. I have to atone. I have to stand up and be accountable. Why? Not because I'm insignificant, but specifically the opposite, because of just how significant I am. That voice that says you're insignificant, you're inconsequential, you're inferior, that's the voice of these angels that Hashem threw down to earth. He put them in us, and we are supposed to purge them and cast them from us. We throw those voices off of a cliff. That is what is going on here in this entire avoda, so critically important. Let's keep going. Skip ahead. Pasuk Chaf Dalad. Pasuk Chaf Dalad. Oh. Page 642, if you're in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, we're continuing in this entire episode of the Avoda, the incense service, the lot, the confession, the he goats, the removal of the shovel and the ladle. So Pasach of Dal tells us, V'rachat b'sarah b'mayim b'makam kadosh, v'lavashas b'gadav v'yatzav v'asas olasovis olasa'am v'chipir ba'ado u'va'ad ha'am. What happens now? Aaron, the Kohen Gadol who succeed him, immerse themselves in the water. Where? B'makam kadosh in a holy place, and they change their clothing. We know that this is the ultimate fashion show of the year. The Kohen Gadol is constantly immersing, coming out, washing, changing, and he's wearing not his ordinary garments and vestments, but rather the ones specifically designated for Yom Kippur. He goes out, he performs the Korban Ola, Ola Sa'am, and he achieves atonement, Ba'ado Uva'ad Ha'am on his own and on behalf of his people. Elsewhere earlier it said, Ba'ado Ba'ad Beso. And in fact, we have this in our liturgy. In the Avodah we read in Musaf on Yom Kippur, Ba'ado Ba'ad Beso Ba'ad Ha'am. And I also spoke about this in the Shalom Bayashir the other night. He is included in his family and they are included in the people. So why does the Pasuk waste space and time to tell us he achieves atonement on behalf of himself and on behalf of his family and on behalf of the people? Just say he achieves atonement on behalf of the people. On behalf of the people includes the family, includes him. But you see from here a critically important lesson that the greatest way to change your family and the greatest way to change the people 
is ba'ado to begin by changing yourself. It's easy to point a finger. It's easy to blame others. It's easy to see ourselves and cast ourselves as victims. But if we want to change the energy in our home, if we want to change the atmosphere in our home, the answer is not to blame and the answer is not to lecture the others. The answer is to model. Ba'ado uba'ad beso uba'ad ha'am. It begins by changing ourselves and then we will see the result is our family will be inspired and change. And then we'll see hopefully an even broader sense of change that comes from that. But it has to start ba'ado. It has to begin by ourselves. We have to take extreme ownership and say, what could I do differently? What positive energy can I contribute? What smile can I put in my face? What words could I be using? What actions could I be modeling? Ba'ado, ba'ad beso, ba'ad It begins and it must begin with us. But in this pasuk, it describes that when Aram, when the Kohen Gadol is changing, first, v'rachat is bisaro, he washes his, his flesh, Essentially, he immerses where? Bamayim in a mikvah. Bimakum kadosh in a holy place. What happens when you don't have a makum kadosh? At least for the men, the men's mikvah is closed. COVID 19 coronavirus, it would be unwise, it's unnecessary. A men's mikvah is something which is extra. So, what do you do and what happens? Oh, comes along the Helege Imrechaim. Zok the Vishnitzarebbe. Mikveh Yisrael Hashem. You know, the mikvah of the Jewish people, we can immerse ourselves, we can transform ourselves, we can cleanse ourselves, we can purify ourselves. Mikvah Yisrael, the mikvah of the Jewish people is Hashem. Asher efshel atar v'litbol, and heiligen b'shefer. Bey anarachitz. You're never going to say Baruch Shemay the same way again. Bey anarachitz. He teaches, he translates, Bey anarachitz, Bey in you anarachitz. I, I cleanse myself. I clean myself. Going back to our Pasuk. Kadosh. I cleanse myself in a Makum Kadosh means I can go to the Mikvah. But what happens when I'm denied and deprived of, deprived of Mikvah? Then, I can immerse in a Mikvah and I can immerse in you, Hashem. I can immerse in feeling your presence, your warmth, your love, your guiding hand. I can immerse in my davening. I can, can immerse in his boidedness with you. I can immerse in meditation and mindfulness with you. I can immerse by singing, having a kumzitz with you. in you, kadosh. So that makom, like hamakom yanachim eschem, and like baruch hamakom baruch we just said at the Seder, that term makom is a name for Hashem. So therefore, says the Vishnitzer, when the Pasuk tells us, even when you don't have a mikvah, you can immerse where? Bimakom in Hashem, Kadosh, who is holy. Mikvah Yisrael Hashem. Even when we don't have the physical mikvah, we can immerse. Bay on our rachets. In you, we can be rachets. We can immerse ourselves and cleanse ourselves in you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, we continue. Conclusion of the Yom Kippur service. And we have the uh, continuation of the, of the karbonos that were offered uh, on Yom Kippur. And then the Torah continues and it tells us the prohibition against eating blood. Blood is the definition of the soul. This is one of the key sources in the big debate. How you define death in Judaism? Is it the cessation of spontaneous respiration? Is it the heartbeat and the ability for the blood to flow? There's a correlation between the blood and blood flow and life and the soul. This pasuk is one of the sources. We're not allowed to eat blood because blood is a, the, source of, the source of life. Okay, continuing, we have a mitzvah to cover the blood. What is the nature of this mitzvah to cover the blood? There's a whole story, not for, not for now. Okay, Perak Yudches, beginning of the next Perak. Uh, now that we've finished the uh, story of Yom Kippur service. God speaks to Moshe. Speak to the Jewish people and tell them, Remind them who I am, who they are. Remind them of the categorical difference between us. I am the omnipotent being who has created the world, who's designed the world and designed them. And here's what I'm telling them. You ready? I want to spend time on these next three psukim, probably the remainder of our time together on this beautiful morning. 
Torah tells us, Hashem says, listen carefully, I'm God. And I programmed you and I designed you and I created this world and I know what's best for you. And I know how you'll get the best and the most and the greatest pleasure out of life. And are you ready? Listen carefully. Here's the deal. Kemasa Eretz Mitzrayim, what they did in Mitzrayim that you lived in, lo sasu. Don't repeat and don't emulate and don't imitate. Don't do what they do in Canaan. That I'm bringing you there. So both the place that you're leaving, don't imitate, don't emulate. And the place that you're going to, don't pick up their habits. Don't follow their decrees and their traditions. We have a specific commandment to be a Jew and to live like a Jew, to have Jewish lifestyle, Jewish habits, Jewish routine, Jewish behaviors. We cannot imitate and emulate the other nations of the world. Of course, we have much in common with them. And of course, we derive the beauty of what they have to offer and we contribute to them. But on the whole, we are informed and inspired by distinctly and uniquely Torah values, Torah ideals, and Torah behaviors. What is this talking about? Kemaisa Eretz Mitzrayim. What is it specifically talking about? Kemaisa Eretz Mitzrayim that we are not supposed to imitate. So open your Mikros Gedolos. Let's go to the Mikros Gedolos. And look first, let's see. Kemaisa Eretz Mitzrayim. Zakhtar Ashi. These are the most degraded, the most decadent, the most morally corrupt of all the nations of the world. And that place you were living in, they had lost their moral compass. They were morally corrupt. Don't be defined by the morals and the ethics and the ethos and the values of where you're living. My dear friends, we too have to be careful. Where we are living is incredibly kind and it has offered us beautiful religious freedom and prosperity and it's invited us to be able to integrate and assimilate and that here is the danger. We have Jewish values and perspectives on all areas of life and we have to not follow Kemaisa Eretz Mitzrayim, we have to not follow that which is deemed corrupt. And when they get to Canaan, the nations that they will conquer are they too are the most corrupt. You cannot follow their stadiums, their, 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 um, their entertainment sources. It's not who we are. Their styles and fashions, that is not who we are. We have to elevate, we have to elevate above it, says Rashi. The Kliyakar expands here, and I want to bring your attention to this beautiful Kliyakar. Kliyakar says, What does this mean? Why does it say, We don't know we came from there. When God tells Moshe, and Moshe is telling the people, like the people of Egypt that you came from, what, that we came from? They don't know where they came from. It's stamped in their passport. They know exactly where they just came from. They suffered there for 210 years. And so on. And, and uh, the Kliyakar therefore comes to the final conclusion. You know what the problem was? Don't emulate what you did in Mitzrayim. And you know what the horrific thing you did in Mitzrayim was? Asher yeshavtem ba, you settled there. Shabikashtem ba yeshiva shalkeva mitzad shechashke nafshechem bilayim uveshikutzayim v'nafshem chavta. What happens? Where's the kliyakar getting this from? When they left Egypt and they're in the desert, this incorrigible people continue to complain to Moshe. And one of the things they say is, "Take us back to Mitzrayim. They had an unbelievable buffet. The salad bar there was fantastic. The the lifestyle there, we miss it." Why'd you take us out in the desert to die here? We miss and we want to go back to Mitzrayim. They craved settling in Egypt. They wanted to identify and walk like Egyptians. They wanted to assimilate into the Egyptian way. So the Kliyakar understands what's going on here in the Pasuk. And here we come to a Yom HaZikaron, Yom Atzma'ud message. And he says, you know what the problem of Mitzrayim was? Asher It's not extraneous to say that you dwelled there. It is exactly the root and the core of the mistake and the problem of what we are being enjoined to avoid. Kemasa Eretz Mitzrayim, Asher Lo Sasu. What's the Lo Sasu? What is it you're not supposed to do? Asher There are reasons to live outside of Israel. There are legitimate reasons not yet to make Aliyah. People have financial, family, health, serving the community. There are legitimate reasons. 
But there are no legitimate reasons not to be struggling with when we'll make Aliyah. Not if, but when and how we can fulfill this dream. We are guests. We are here temporarily. The only place a Jew has permanence is in Eretz Yisrael. It's where we belong. And as tonight and tomorrow we'll celebrate the religious significance of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, performing miracles that were literally as great as the splitting of the sea and the ten plagues to give us back our homeland and to give us back a sense of sovereignty and the ability to uh, protect ourselves. Look at Look at what's going on in Israel, the statistics. There are roughly the same number of people who live in Israel as who live in New York and New York City. And yet, look at the difference of the casualties. Look at the difference of the, of the behavior, of the social distancing that's led to, not to suggest that we're better or deserve better, but the behavior. And that's because we have that ability to govern and to rule ourselves. It's a miracle for which we have to express gratitude in whatever way we do, halachically, halal, bracha, no, whatever you do, but to pause and to take a moment, say, kapitot tehillam, to say, thank you for this gift, thank you for this bracha, we should just be able to fly and visit and ultimately move there again. So says the Kliyakar, it's Mitzrayim, you know what it is that you did in Mitzrayim, that lo sa'asu, you shouldn't repeat? Asher yeshavtem ba, that you settled, that you thought you were there permanently, that you wanted to be just like them, that you didn't move and make a move to be able to come to Eretz, Eretz Kenan, because that's where we belong. And that's what the Kliyakar continues. They loved, they craved, they were magnetically drawn to the land of Israel. But here says the Kliyakar, the Jewish people, ah, they were fine living in Egypt. They were perfectly happy living in Egypt. So much so that Hashem had to orchestrate events to be able to bring them and drag them to, to Israel. So what's the Masa Eretz Kanan? What we should not do, that's like Masa Eretz Kanan, the Losasu there is, that God says, I have to drag you. I have to drag you there by, by increasing the anti-Semitism in Chutzla Arts where you are. I have to drag you there by making things so inconvenient or uncomfortable that you realize it's time to go. We're not supposed to redeem these, repeat these patterns of history. So you hear this Peshav the Kliyakar? It's fantastic. The Kamasa Eretz Mitzrayim that Losasu is Asher Yishavtimba, that we settled there. And the Kamasa Eretz Kanaan that we're not supposed to repeat Losasu is that that we have to be dragged there. Says the Kliyakar of Lunchitz, writing a long time ago, not with Zionistic uh, uh, underpinnings, that these two psukim, this pasuk, which is telling us about how we're to behave and what we're to not emulate, is essentially our, our mission statement as a nation, of a people, of how we're supposed to see ourselves when we're in Chutz Laaretz, and that we should be driven, not if, but when. There's legitimate reasons not to make Aliyah, there are no legitimate reasons not to be struggling with when we will be able to make that Aliyah. Another understanding of Kemas Eretz Mitzrayim, is in sort of Shechter, Mori Verabi uh, says all the time, he said it in our shul uh, several times, in fact, that Kemasa Eretz Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim was known as a place of, of superstition. It was governed by superstition and horoscopes and magic. And a Kodesh Baruch says, Kemasa Eretz Mitzrayim, I took you out of there. You're not supposed to look at or worship or subscribe to horoscopes and superstition and magic. You have me. To be tamim with Hashem means it's prohibited to turn to or to look for answers elsewhere. In fact, says Rashi, you're not allowed to go, but Darche Hamori. The Tosefta says, you know what Darche Hamori is? A red bendel. Tying a red string around your wrist, the Tosefta, the Tanaim, right, is Darche Hamori. You think you're going to misbehave, you're going to speak Lashon Hara, you're going to make a bracha, you're going to cheat in business, you're going to sleep late and not daven. Oh, but I tied a red string around my wrist. I'm good to go. Nobody can harm me. Nobody can touch me. That's Darche Hamori. That's not a Jewish mentality. That's not Tamim Tiem Hashem Lokecha. That's going back to Egypt. That's Maisa Mitzrayim. Hashem says, I took you out of Egypt. Why are you going back tying a red string? We just ate a delicious Shlisochala. Those who subscribe to Shlisochala, I'm not going through the history of it right now, I'm not railing on it. Someone made me and I ate a delicious Shlisochala. It's a schooler for the dentist when everyone bites into the metal key. But the Shlisochala is if you think that, you know what? 
I don't have to have virtue or merits. I can act out and misbehave. Ooh, I put a key in my challah or I shaped my challah like a key. Ooh, the Parnassah is going to flow this year. Then you've gone back to Mitzrayim. Then you're simply walking like an Egyptian. Then you're subscribing to silly Narishkite superstitions. But if you say, when I put a key in my challah, it reminds me that the challah really is reminiscent of the Mun. And just like the Mun descended from heaven, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one who's responsible for my Parnassah. So this... Minhag, or not minhag, legitimate or illegitimate, reminds me that the man descends from heaven, my parnasa also descends from heaven, it therefore reinforces and promotes the amuna in me, Psh, okay, then it's beautiful. So we have to measure, and we have to evaluate each of these behaviors. Is it silly superstition? Then Kamasa Eretz Mitzrayim, it's taking me back to Egypt. Does it have greater meaning? Then it's something which is okay. Says the Svasemis, Kamasa Eretz Mitzrayim, says the Svasemis, what is this talking about, Kamasa Eretz Mitzrayim? Which behavior? Which behaviors? Listen, this Vasam is the Ger Rebbe, Rabbi Yehuda Leib Miger. Eina Torah miskavenes kam leisurim, shoyakach huzur Yisrael benifra bepsukim amafurashim. When the Torah says, don't be like an Egyptian, it's not talking about things that are prohibited, eating non-kosher, violating Shabbos, wearing shatnas. That's not what it's talking about when it says, don't be like an Egyptian. And how does he know that, this Vasam is? Because the Torah explicitly tells us those prohibitions. So obviously, that's not what it's talking about. So then, what is it talking about? It's not talking about things that are already prohibited. It's talking about even that which is permissible. The style, the fashion, the ethos, the mentality, the attitude, the behavior. Don't be like the host country in which we're living, but rather fashion specifically a Jewish way of life and a Jewish value. And thirdly, I want to share with you on this Pasuk, one more pshat. And this is uh, beautiful for an article from one of my Rebbeim, Rabbi Yaakov Neuberger, Shlita, and he says the following beautiful insight. He quotes from Rav Hirsch. Kemasa Eretz Mitzrayim. What is this ma'ase, the practice of the Egyptians? So, according to many of our Meforshim, to the nature of their social interaction that we're supposed to study, learn, and deplore and distance ourselves from. We don't hang out in bars and we don't follow certain behaviors. And when it comes to social behaviors, we have a Jewish standard, a Torah standard. Rafersh explains that the word ma'ase in Torah indicates social conduct and ultimately the attitude of a people towards justice and civic life. It's certainly reasonable that slave masters could stay, start out as individuals whose entire world consisted of themselves and their needs. Perhaps that's why we are reminded in that Pasuk that we must not emulate the Egyptians among whom we lived. Apparently, it's precisely because we felt the awful sting of a society built on self-focus that we should seek with great conviction to protect ourselves from the behaviors that could have contributed to the development of that culture. In other words, we are who we live with. We are affected, nature and nurture. So we've been nurtured in Egypt. We might behave like them. That's what we're being warned. When it comes to our interactions with others, don't be like them. It's not okay to gossip or to judge or to negate or to ostracize. It's not okay to marginalize. It's not okay to extort or exploit the most vulnerable in society. Just because we saw them do that in Egypt doesn't mean it's okay for us. And here, Rabbi Neuberger quotes a beautiful insight. Baruch HaLevi Epstein, the author of the Torah Tamima, has a beautiful sefer. We use it in Siddur Snippets called Baruch Sha'amar. And there he says the following. What is the pshat, what we say in Halal? We just said it. When we left Mitzrayim, we describe it as Beis Yaakov Me'am Lo'ez. The house of Yaakov left Me'am, a people, Lo'ez, who had a strange language. That was the big miracle. God took us out. You took us out from an oppressive people who were persecuting, torturing us, people who were killing us. You took us out, they had a different language. Uh, why is that significant? Why is that important? Why does Dada HaMelech choose to describe our, oppressive, our oppressors in this non-descriptive term? You know, even people who treated us well could have had a foreign language. Why is he describing them? Me'am lo'ez, a nation with this foreign language. And listen to what the Torah Tamima says. The Torah Tamima suggests that the Egyptians are being referred to as an evil-tongued nation. Not a foreign-tongued nation, but an evil. As perpetrators of la'az, La'az is Lashon Hara. The Egyptians, even within their moral code, had absolutely no problem with gossip, with negativity, with slander. They had no problem with being verbally abusive. Me'am lo'ez, that was the vernacular, the vocabulary, the language of the Egyptians was la'az, was Lashon Hara, was negative. It was a tool the Egyptians' leadership used against us to try to marginalize and to torture and to abuse us. And that's what we're being warned and that's what we're being told. David Melch is saying, Beis Yaakov, we have the ability to 
come out and elevate to use our power of language so differently and to rise above. And that's what the Pasuk is teaching us, says Rabbi Neuberger. What is the behavior in Mitzrayim that we're supposed to elevate above? Don't talk gossip and don't negate others and don't judge and don't be verbally abusive and don't slander. We are mi beis Yaakov me'am lo'ez. Kemasa Eretz Mitzrayim, we are not supposed to imitate or emulate that behavior. But what I want to spend our last few minutes on is really contrasting the last two, the next two psukim, which is all we'll have time for. The next two psukim seem utterly redundant and repetitive, and even so, out of order. What's going on? Perak Yerches, chapter 18, verse Dalad. As mishpatai ta'asu v'eschukosai tishmeru l'aleches bahem, carry out my laws, and safeguard my decrees and follow them. Ani Hashem lokeichem, I'm God. Ushmartem and safeguard chukosai vis mishpatai. So we just said mishpatai and chukosai. Now we switch the order chukosai and mishpatai. Asher yaseh osam adam v'chay bahem. And if you do this, if you safeguard them v'chay bahem, you will earn life. And how do I know that? Ani Hashem. So he tells us in two successive sukkim. He tells us he's God. We already knew that. He tells us to observe the chukem and mishpatim. We just told us that. He switches the order of it for some reason, and he throws in, by the way, if you do this, then v'chai bahem. What in the world is going on over here? So the Orachayim HaKadosh, Orachayim Ben Atar, tells us that here we have a formula or a prescription for personal growth. Again, if we had time, I would walk you through Rashi. Rashi has what to say on each of these, and the Ramban has a beautiful insight. But the Orachayim HaKadosh, I want to draw your attention to, says the following. Ushmartem, ask the Orachayim our question. Why are we repeating what we just said? So v'izbor api divrayim. Shamru v'chai bahem lo shiyamas bahem. Shim ansu lavar lachas mitzvah Hashem yavar v'lo yaharig. Here we have something that we are all fulfilling right now. What does it mean v'chai bahem? We have a mandate to live by them. To live by them means that Torah, all the laws and rules of Torah are there to enhance our life, to enrich our life. And if they would cost us our very life, then what is the point of them if they were not here to enjoy and benefit from them? And therefore, outside of the three cardinal sins, murder, promiscuity, and idolatry, we are supposed to violate Torah law rather than sacrifice or give our life. And sadly, in our time, we are fulfilling this mandate, this mission of v'chai Bahem regularly. In fact, Rabbi Salavichik Chomesh talks about his grandfather, who is being referenced a lot these days, Rabbi Chaim Brisk, who was very, very strict on v'chai Bahem, that pikuach nefesh, that saving a life is docha kola kula. And therefore, we are forfeiting minyan, dvarm shebek dusha, the rules of Shabbos and people being able to drive, to donate plasma, all left and right, we are fulfilling all around us. He tells a story that his grandfather, Reb Chaim, disagreed with the legal view that on the Day of Atonement one feeds a sick person small amounts at a time, each amount less than the forbidden measure. He instructed those who were taking care of a sick individual to serve a regular meal, just as they would on other days. When my father was about to travel to a town close to Kovna to take up a rabbinical post, Reb Chaim took him aside and said, I command you to follow my view regarding a sick person in danger on Yom Kippur, for it is an absolute halachic truth. Reb Chaim was very strict. He said, I'm not being lenient on Yom Kippur, I'm being strict in v'chai bahem and pikuach nefesh. This is our mission and our mandate. And those who play with it have the status of a rodef. This is not a time to play with it or to be lenient or flexible. We are strict like Reb Chaim Brisker on v'chai bahem. So it says the Yorachayim, coming back to the Yorachayim, there are three areas that you have to give your life. So the first Pasuk is referring back to Arayos. We have the whole section that tells us about the laws of promiscuity, of licentiousness, of immorality, of what are the relationships that are out of bounds. So the Pasuk that is adjacent to that section doesn't include Vachai Bahem because you have to lose your life rather than violate them. And therefore we repeat the Pasuk again when it's adjacent now to the next section when it comes to the rest of mitzvahs, now v'chai bahem, one should forfeit the mitzvah in order to ensure their life because the whole mitzvahs are there in order to enhance our life. That is their purpose. That is their reason. That is why they are, that is why they are here. Rabbi Salavichik says something very interesting. An esmishpatai tasub eschukosai. He says this word chok. Generally chukim seem to be irrational. If not for the divine imperative, we would never observe them. We assume a divine purpose and value, but we cannot fathom them. Mishpatim, on the other hand, reflect cultural and humanistic considerations. Yet the force of the divine command applies to both demanding observance and unqualified commitment. In other words, what's the difference between Mishpatim and Chukim? And we repeat it, and we change the order of it. The Mishpatim, we understand. They have humanistic considerations. They're intuitive. They're rational. 
Whereas the chukim seem to be a divine imperative beyond our understanding. Rashi cites a rabbinic comment on paraduma. It's a decree ordained by me, you have no right to question it. This suggests that chuk can be defined as an absolute norm and an ultimate command demanding total submission without reservation. It is to be affirmed even if the Sutton and the nations of the world taunt Israel, ridiculing its irrationality. The observant Jew accepts the Torah as a patient follows the prescription of a doctor, taking complex medication and submitting to required super surgical procedures. The chok has two characteristics, universal immutability and the fact that a chok is independent of situational factors. Etymologically, the root chok, ches kuf kuf, signifies the act of carving, engraving, making incisions in a hard surface like stone or metal. And that's the idea of a chok. It is, it is engraved onto our heart. It is within us. And what the Rav suggests here, I wish the time to go through it entirely, and in fact, if you look on the bottom of the Yartz Kroll Stone Chumash, this is one of the places that it quotes Rabbi Soloveitchik in the Yartz Kroll Chumash, the Rav says, even a chok comes from the Pintel Yid inside us. We think that the Mishpatim are the result of our rational thinking, and a chok is beyond us. It's not beyond us. The word chok, chakak, engraved in us, means HaKadosh Baruch Hu put it within the Pintel Yid. He put it within our Jewish soul, that we don't arrive at it intellectually, and yet we can sense we have a familiarity, we have a comfort with us, with it, because the Kodesh Baruch Hu engraved it within our hearts and within our, and within our soul. V'chai Bahem. I'll just end off with the Kotzka Rebbe on V'chai Bahem. Says the Kotzka Rebbe on V'chai Bahem. V'loshiyamas Bahem. V'chai Bahem means, V'chai Bahem means the way in which we're supposed to do the mitzvahs. Shmartem eschukosai mishpatai. Observe Torah, V'chai Bahem. How do you earn life? By doing them. If you have a pulse, but you're not connected to Hashem, to His world, to His prescription for how to find meaning, purpose, and happiness, you're not really alive. And how are we supposed to do it? With a sense of v'chai, with a sense of hislavas, with a passion, with an energy, with an enthusiasm, with a zest, with a zeal, with a sense of, with a sense of joy. So we should merit v'chai bahem to be healthy and to be able to live without having to sacrifice mitzvahs. And we should merit v'chai bahem to do those mitzvahs with a sense of joy, a sense of fervor, a sense of a great vigor. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful and a meaningful day.